0: I believe, in retrospect, that there was overinvestment in housing. I believe, in retrospect, origination standards slipped. There was too much intermediation. There were too many middlemen. Home ownership rates probably rose too high.
1: Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson.
2: And I'm Khanna jaffe Today is Friday, April 9th, and that was former Fannie Mae CEO Daniel Mudd. You heard at the top. He was testifying before the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that's been going on this week. And Adam, on the show today, the president of the New York Federal Reserve, makes his debut on the Planet Money podcast and makes a radical statement that we have to admit right up front doesn't sound all that radical. We promise it is. First, the Planet Money Indicator.
1: Here with today's indicator, fresh out of the blog cave, is Planet Money blogger Jacob Goldstein. Hey, man. Hi, Adam. So what is the indicator today?
0: Today's indicator is 42%. Uh, It's a number that shows that big banks have been masking how much debt they're carrying. Uh, It works something like this. Every quarter, every three months, banks have to tell the world how much money they owe. And lately, it's been looking better, like they're carrying less debt. But as it turns out, what they report each quarter isn't the whole story. Wait, a year and a half ago, these big banks
1: almost destroyed the world economy by having bad debt, and now they're playing
0: games with how much debt they have, trying to hide it from us? Exactly. Exactly. This comes from really a pretty clever story in today's Wall Street Journal, where they figured out that right before the biggest banks have to tell the world how much money they owe, the banks pay off a bunch of their debts. Then they report their numbers to the world. Then they go back out and borrow a bunch more money. So it turns out that On average, the level of debt that the banks are reporting is actually 42 percent lower than their peak debt level each quarter.
2: So the banks basically set it up so that on the day that they have to report how much they owe, they don't actually owe as much as they normally do.
0: That's right. Uh, I should add this one last detail. This, this isn't the bank's whole debt burden. Uh, it's based on borrowing in one area of the market, the repo market. But the repo market is really important. And these figures, uh, I think, are, are quite meaningful because it shows that the banks are still relying heavily on borrowed money and that for the public, it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. And, Jacob, you have written a lot more about the repo
1: market.
2: You're all about the repo market. I'm really into the
1: repo market. (laughs) You are Mr. Repo Market. Um, So read all that on the Planet Money blog at npr.org slash money. And we always recommend that our listeners check out Jacob's excellent work there.
2: Back to the blog cave. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So, Adam, I secretly have another indicator. That is the number two, as in how many Fed podcasts can Planet Money do in one week? we can do, too, all of our podcasts. That's right. Today, we are going to take another look at the mysterious Central Bank. On Tuesday, on our last podcast, we looked at how the Fed now owns all these crazy financial instruments from the crisis. They own loans on luxury hotels and airports and homes all across the U.S. It's very surprising and weird to look through this portfolio to see what the Fed owns. And then... After that, the Fed did something even more surprising than by loans to Hiltons in Malaysia and Hawaii. The Fed granted an interview. That's right. We called the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to ask for an interview, something we do fairly regularly. And shockingly, they said yes.
1: Right. Exactly. Now, traditionally, there's a Always been this tradition. New York Fed presidents do not do interviews for
2: broadcast. They'll talk to you. They'll answer your questions on the phone, on background, but they don't actually let you record.
1: Yeah. I, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a young New York Fed president named Tim Geithner who we at NPR wanted to interview. And the way we were going to work it out was he would answer the questions and then we'd have to get an actor to read the words that he said.
2: <laughs> I have a feeling I know which actor you were thinking of. Your your father, our resident Local professional actor.
1: Yeah, he's Planet Money's in-house (laughs) on-call Shakespearean (laughs) actor. So you can imagine how excited I was to learn that the new New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, has decided that the public needs to understand the system better, that the Fed needs to get their voice out.
2: And so this today, right now, is the third ever broadcast of an interview with the New York Fed president.
1: As far as we know, that's right.
2: OK. So and and just how, how old is the Fed again, Adam?
1: It's 97 years young and just getting into radio. <laughs>
2: 97 <laughs> years, three radio interviews. OK. So we're going to get to that interview in one second. I think just before we get there, we need to do some quick Fed 101, Fed basics. So there is not one Federal Reserve Bank. There are 12 independent Fed banks all over the country, New York has one, Chicago, Dallas, San Francisco, etc., um, And each one of those has their own board of directors, its own president.
1: And together, they make up the Federal Reserve System, which is presided over by the Board of Governors in D.C. That's what Ben Bernanke is the chair of. But at the heart of the system, you have these 12 equal independent Fed banks. And I should say they're almost Equal. Eleven of them are equal. But the New York Federal Reserve Bank is its own special
0: thing.
2: Yeah, the New York Fed is far more powerful and, and important than maybe even the all the eleven other banks put together. Because the New York Fed is the main way that the Federal Reserve System actually affects the economy. It's the New York Fed that has rooms full of traders constantly monitoring bank lending rates and buying and selling bonds and making sure that the Fed funds rate stays where Ben Bernanke's board exactly wants it to be.
1: So when you hear in the news that the Fed, you know, helped bail out Bear Stearns, that means the New York Fed did it. When you hear that AIG was rescued by the Fed, it's the New York Fed. And the New York Fed president is always major player in the U.S. economy. I mean, what was the last guy? What was his name? <laughs>
2: you know it. Tim Geithner was the last New York Fed president. And now, obviously, he's the Treasury Secretary. So we're going to have more on how the Fed works, the basic 101. We're actually interested in doing a Let's Explain the Fed series of podcasts or stories But for today, it's just basically it's important that you know that after Ben Bernanke, after the chair of the Fed Board of Governors, the president of the New York Fed is the second most important person in the system, one of the most important people in the U.S. economy. And that's
1: why everywhere you go, anywhere in America, you are going to hear people saying Bill Dudley. (laughs) What's Bill Dudley thinking?
2: (laughs) Okay, So you are very excited to get to sit down with Bill Dudley. And I can actually imagine just like seeing the inside of the New York Fed would be cool.
1: Yeah, it is this incredible, imposing building downtown. I've seen it my whole life and sort of wondered what it was when I was a kid. It looks like this old jail, these thick walls with bars on the window. And then uh, our producer, Caitlin Kenny, uh, was with me. And we went in. There was all this security. We were ushered up this special express elevator to the top floor, the executive floor. And it's sort of like one of these spaces that takes your breath away. I, mean, I, I, I remember I went to the West Wing at the White House, which – is actually kind of a dump looking. It just looks like a not that great office space. This is what I think the West Wing should look like. It's just you know marble and with these beautiful carpets and you know just perfect understated elegance. There's these small statues on loan from the Metropolitan Museum of Art.
2: And you're sitting on top of tons and tons of gold the whole time, right?
1: Yeah, something like ten percent of the gold ever discovered by human beings is in the New York Fed building.
2: Okay, so you go into Bill Dudley's office.
1: And in the most august and reverential of environments, he lays out his radical, revolutionary (laughs) vision of the future.
2: Adam, don't oversell it. What you should say is you mean radical and revolutionary for a statement by a Fed official.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess that's fair enough.
3: What we've seen in the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years is that Asset bubbles seem to be reoccurring. Uh,
1: Possibly more rapidly than in the past.
3: Yeah, that's hard to say, but, but certainly we had a technology stock market bubble, which was very large in the late 1990s, followed by a housing and credit bubble over the last few years. And, you know, both those bubbles were large, and when they deflated, they actually had pretty significant effects for the macroeconomy. So I think it's that experience is making us rethink the notion that we should, you know, Basically, put very little weight on the asset bubbles and just worry about cleaning up the bubbles after they burst. Um, what we've learned over the last few years is the consequences of not trying to identify asset bubbles and, and having a very passive approach uh, can be very, you know, lead to very uh, unfortunate consequences.
2: Yeah, Adam, I, I think you oversold it.
1: Dude, Bill Dudley, in that sentence, is breaking all the rules. <laughs> all right. What he's doing is making a suggestion that perhaps it's time for at least some people within the Federal Reserve System to begin considering possibly executing an experiment and trying to <laughs> alter some of the long-standing guidelines.
2: He's, he's a very polite Karl Marx. Um, so, so what he's actually proposing is is something that seems so obvious. It's it's hard like it's hard to understand how this can possibly be a big deal. He's saying that the Federal Reserve or some other regulator should actually try to figure out if there's a bubble going on in housing or the stock market or something. And if there is, they should try to do something about it.
1: And the stakes of this are huge. As as I understand it, what he's saying, you know, there's all these people out there saying the Fed messed up. The Fed made a mistake. And he's actually saying, Yeah. We did. So did lots of other people. But yes, we probably could have done a lot more than we did to prevent this crisis, or at least to help make it not be so bad. And not just this most recent crisis, but the stock bubble crisis in the late 90s and every other bubble crisis we've seen.
2: I think it actually helps to hear Alan Greenspan talk about this. So the former Fed chairman was on the Hill this week testifying at the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. And he talks about the same thing when he's talking about Fed policy. Basically, he was there saying deadly is dead wrong.
3: History tells us regulators cannot identify the timing of a crisis or anticipate exactly where it will be located Or how large the losses and spillovers will be, regulators cannot successfully use the bully pulpit to manage asset prices, and they cannot calibrate regulation and supervision in response to movements in asset prices, nor can regulators fully eliminate the possibility of future crises.
1: So there you have the traditional view, not just Greenspan, but most people in the Federal Reserve for the near century of its existence, which is... To summarize, sure, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, yes, there was a bubble a few years ago. Yes, it's easy to look back and say, if only in 2005 we had done this or if we had done that, the crisis wouldn't have been so bad. But if you look at the record and you see how regulators act in the middle of these things, they're just really bad at identifying bubbles or coming up with ideas to stop them.
2: Can we just talk about asset prices for a second here, though, because that, that comes up a lot. Let's just explain what that means.
1: Sure. So so the Fed's job, by law, is to prevent inflation. And inflation is determined by the U.S. government by looking at consumer prices, the cost of stuff you consume, that you use, which can be physical things like food and clothes or services like doctor bills or lawyer bills or whatever.
2: Right. So food and clothes, doctor bills, those are different than assets. Assets are things that you buy for their value as investments, things like stocks and bonds and houses. And asset prices go up and down much more quickly and chaotically, usually than consumer prices, than food or clothes. And asset prices are not used to figure out if there's inflation.
1: And... An asset price bubble. We should explain that real quickly. Um, That's when people start paying way too much for investments because they believe that someone else somewhere down the line is going to pay them even more for it. And bubbles have existed for centuries. And eventually what happens is you can't find the next sucker. You can't find anyone else to pay those huge prices. And the whole thing collapses. The bubble bursts
2: But in the moment, it's really hard to know if there is a bubble, if people are paying too much for assets or if there's some reason that the asset, those Internet stocks or houses or whatever, are just worth a lot more.
1: So Greenspan, most Fed officials throughout history, most central bankers around the world say, forget asset prices. It's too complicated. You'll never figure it out. Just focus on consumer prices.
2: I like how you became a real New Yorker right there. (laughs) Forget (laughs) asset prices. Well,
1: we're talking about the New York (laughs) Fed, man. All right. So I put this idea to Dudley, and I felt like his answer was really straight.
3: This is not easy. I think you're absolutely right that every asset bubble is different. Uh, they're highly idiosyncratic in terms of, you know, causes, duration. Uh, and I think that you're also right that it's, you know, very difficult to identify them in real time. So I'm not saying at all that this is easy. All I'm arguing for is that taking a completely passive approach doesn't seem to me to be fully appropriate when we've seen in this crisis the consequences of, 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 that, of, the, of that approach. I think that uh, you know, it w- would be hard uh, to do this well, but i don 't think that 's an excuse to, 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 to not try to act. I mean the Federal Reserve conducts monetary policy all the all the time under conditions that are of high uncertainty. Uh, trying to evaluate uh, asset price movements uh, is the same is, you know it 's going to be highly uncertain, but you know as the prices go up higher and higher. The probability that it's probably not related to the fundamentals goes up more and more. And at some point, there's got to be a shift where uh, action then becomes uh, appropriate. I think also when you see asset prices moving a lot, you sort of have to ask yourself the question, well, what's really going on? What's driving those asset price movements? And are those, you know, my view of, the, of asset price bubbles is that it often starts with an innovation that's real. And that innovation results in a change in value, which is appropriate. But then what happens is there's feedback loops that reinforce uh, the idea that this innovation is extremely valuable. So, for example, in the housing boom, subprime credit is introduced. Uh, That leads to much greater demand for housing. That pushes up home prices. And then the feedback loop starts taking place. Because home prices are going up, subprime lending doesn't look very risky. So that encourages more people to do subprime lending, which creates more credit for housing, which causes house prices to go up further, which, again, makes subprime mortgage lending look not very risky. But that can only go on as long as you can qualify more and more new buyers to buy houses, uh, which is increasingly difficult because house prices are going up faster than income. So you can, so if you're thinking through that chain, you should see that this is going to end very badly. At some point, housing prices are not going to be able to go up faster than income. In fact, they're going to have to go up much more, slower, more slowly than income. At that point in time, subprime mortgage, mortgage lending is going to be a lot, you're going to find out it's a lot riskier than you thought. And then when that happens, all the securities that were issued back by the subprime mortgage assets are going to be a lot more risky. And so you sort of have to follow the, the thread through a little bit. And I think if you did that, you'd probably take a little bit more cautionary approach.
1: And the reason I find this conversation exciting, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners do too, because it's sort of rarefied stuff. But the stakes are really, really high um, because we are talking about this question, which really is a question. No one knows for sure. Could, if the Fed were differently structured, could it have prevented this crisis? And could it, could it make it less likely that a crisis like this or some other horrible Bubble bursting crisis would happen in the future. Yeah, yeah I, I
3: mean, I, my view is, is not so much that we're going to prevent all asset bubbles. I think that's un, unrealistic. But what we might be able to do is prevent the asset bubbles from being quite so big, and maybe from present, preventing the consequences of the asset bubbles from when they burst being quite so bad. So imagine in the last few years, if let's say let's say a much tougher approach had been taken to subprime underwriting. So we basically said you can't have uh, uh, no doc loans, uh, you have to have uh, restrictions on loan to value ratios. You have to make sure the subprime loans that the people actually can afford them once their teaser rates uh, periods end if those you, are if, crazy if, ideas, why would you want to if do any of done that? all those things if you 'd done all those things, I would speculate that if, we, we had, if all those things had been in place, there would have been less credit that would have flowed into the housing sector. Housing prices would have gone up less far. And when the whole situation reversed, we see a less severe decline in housing prices, less stress on the financial system, and therefore less stress on the macroeconomy. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, obviously hindsight is 20, 20 but it seems to me with the benefit of hindsight, it seems like things could have been done to restrain the asset price movements in a way that would have generated a more stable financial system and a more stable macroeconomy.
1: All right and this is something we're going to be following. So so I just want to so let me ask are you what are you promising us if if this happens will will there be fewer bubbles will there be less severe bubbles what can we
3: expect I would say that what we're what I'm proposing is that we try try to identify bubbles in real time try to develop tools to address those bubbles, try to use those tools when appropriate to limit the, the size of those, of those bubbles, and therefore t- try to limit the damage when those bubbles burst. And you don't know if you can pull it off. No, I, I mean, you know, but until you try, you can, you know, you're certainly not going to succeed if you don't try. So it seems to me that what's really changed is that we've seen the consequences of inaction. We've seen that pretty demonstrably in the worst recession in the post-World War II period. That suggests that we should reconsider whether we should make an effort to be more proactive. And that's essentially what I'm proposing. I'm proposing a framework to have how to think about this, what tools you might be able to use to address the asset bubbles, and under what conditions you might apply those tools uh, to try to temper uh, a, a, a bubble's uh, formation.
2: So, So is he saying the Fed just never tried? Like... The Fed never even tried to identify and stop asset bubbles before. Yeah. So so I feel like you're you're asking like a different question. You're asking, can the Fed stop asset bubbles? And he's saying, we don't know because we've never even tried.
1: Yeah. And to have the second most powerful guy in the Federal Reserve System say, yeah, let's try. Let's try next time. That is big news because – Central banks move very, very slowly. They change policy very, very slowly. And that's good overall. They should move slowly. The whole point of a central bank, the whole point of the Fed is to provide stability, predictability to an economy that – It's generally pretty chaotic. So you don't want a central bank jumping around on a whim, even on a good whim. So it's going to take a long time to make this change, even if it happens at all, to have the Fed set up systems to monitor and try and figure out if there are bubbles going on and if there are, try to figure out ways to stop them, to pop them.
2: However, I have to say, I mean, having just done a whole show about the Fed taking on the craziest financial instruments from Wall Street in a weekend. I mean, Tuesday's show is all about how the Fed over one weekend became investor to some of the wildest, craziest financial products Wall Street ever came up with. So Dudley is this cautious, very slow moving guy, but he also happens to be investors to some very toxic assets.
1: Right. And we should note that Dudley came after all of that stuff happened, but yeah, the last two years we've seen the Fed do things it's never done before—radical, radical change. There's no question. And I actually, I had no choice, of course. I had to ask him about the mall in Oklahoma City that you had talked about, and all the weird assets that the podcast on Tuesday was about.
3: We're trying to manage them as as a as a, as a you know smart investor would manage them in a way to maximize their value. Uh, you know, that said, you know, we would prefer, you know, if, you know, since this isn't what we view our main job, uh, we would prefer to actually, you know, probably liquidate these portfolios maybe a little bit more quickly than a private investor because, you know, we don't really want to be in this business.
1: It just blows my mind to think that we could call them all in Oklahoma and realize their owner is the Fed. Does that. How does Just how do you feel when you think about that? It's such a weird thing.
3: Well, we're not happy about it. Uh, you know, this is sort of the, the, the downside of the intervention. Uh, but for
1: you, just as a human being, would you... I did not
3: expect as president of the New York Federal Reserve that I'd be having to worry about a, a mall in Oklahoma City. <laughs> is that fair?
1: <laughs> he also told me that it is very, very rare for the Fed to do things like buy malls in Oklahoma City, and he really hopes it never happens again.
2: We actually got some notes from people who live in Oklahoma saying that the Fed's mall is actually half empty and really depressing.
1: We did it. We ended the podcast on a really dark note. (laughs)
2: Like always. All
1: right. That does it for us today. Don't want to let anything optimistic seep in. (laughs) So you can read – well, this is optimistic – you can read Bill Dudley's remarkably readable speech. It's a Fed policy speech that I fully understood. Caitlin thought it was really well written. Yeah, it's that's just good very news. clear. That's uh, It's all about asset bubbles and how and why the Fed or someone should look at them. We link to it at npr.org slash money. And for you obsessive Fed watchers out there, we – do have a transcript of the entire Bill Dudley interview. There's, you know, lots of other sort of technical gems in there, so check that out at npr.org slash money.
2: And you can always send us your thoughts and suggestions for shows at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah jaffiwald
1: And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. I driving pop them
0: all the time don't need to trust a single word they say You Are creating all the bubbles
2: at play There's a